we wouldn't know that on Zoom anyway. So you, you could say that you did have pants on and be completely naked from the waist down and no one would be the wiser. I tell you what, mate, it's the best thing about doing meetings at home. Hello and welcome back to the Fearless Training Raw Knowledge Podcast with your host, myself as ever, Alex Connor, where we talk everything training, nutrition and lifestyle collectively. And this week we are back with another guest, but before we dive into that, a couple of key points and things I want to bring to your attention. Firstly, the gyms are finally starting to reopen around the world, and I hope wherever you are listening to this podcast, you're in the same boat and you are able to get back into your training very soon. However, keep in mind, for those of you who have listened to my last podcast on how to reintegrate successfully into the gym, I appreciate it. If you've not, please go and listen. It can save yourself a lot of time and frustration, especially as a lot of people are going to getting back into the gym. Lots of energy, a little bit overzealous, a little bit too gung-ho, and you're going to be out of the gym as fast as you're going back in. So it is important to take a more graded and pragmatic approach as hard and challenging as that can be. I know how much everyone does love to work out, including myself, and it can be easy to go in and go too hard too soon. And I'm speaking from experience and those who have far more of it than me. So I'm telling you now, take a graded approach and have a little think because you want to be able to you know, train sustainably and you want to put yourself in the best possible position to continue training and actually recover your gains and then surpass your own progress wherever you are at. Now, obviously, if you like these episodes, I just want to bring it to your attention. Please go and leave a rating and a review on iTunes, on Spotify. If you're listening on YouTube, leave a comment, share, subscribe. It helps the channel grow. It takes literally a minute or two if it's safe to do so when you're not driving. Please do that. I appreciate it. As always, the Academy is there and we'll be kicking back and taking that one to the next level. In the coming months, we'll be able to get back on track and pump out a lot more quality information and build that out with all the plans and procedures we had in place before all of this and the limitations are lifted. So keep your eyes on that one. If you're not in it, you can check that out in the link in the description below. It is the Netflix of fitness. You can subscribe and cancel at any time. And it's got all the education you need in all facets, training, nutrition, and lifestyle, as we always talk about. Okay, so my guest today is Dean Somerset. We have some interesting conversations around how to move more effectively, how to communicate better with your client pain management, injury rehabilitation, and the like. We cover a number of topics for the strength-based athletes also and talk about his experiences, biggest lessons learned, some wins, and how he's been coaching his clients today. Without further ado, guys, enjoy this latest conversation between myself and Dean Somerset. Dean, welcome to the Fearless Training Raw Knowledge Podcast. Thank you for making the time. How are we in your part of the world? Uh, it's Thursday afternoon right now. I think it's Friday morning down where you are. So uh, we're kind of running a dateline on top of things. But uh, yeah, it's going pretty well. I mean, we're getting to that gradual reopening phase of life that everyone seems to be going through. And it is what it is, right? And I'm training most of my clients through Zoom or Skype, just like every other trainer in the world. And just waiting for the day when we can crush some deadlifts and squats together. Oh yeah, it's very much like that. I see a couple of implements in the background. What is it? A preacher bar, a trap bar? You got a little bit of a setup going down there. Yeah, I'll show you. I've got uh, 
dumbbells, landmine, my wife's bikes, trap bar, curl bar, squat rack, bench, bands, heavy bag, glute ham raise over in the corner, more kettlebells, WWE championship belt. And then when we look in the front, I've got a light box, TV, stereo, spin bike, all that kind of fun stuff. So basement of champions is in full effect these days. I was just going to say, I mean, I think you've pissed off and won over a lot of the audience already. One, by your amazing <laughs> setup, and two, that you've got a, a championship wrestling belt. Uh, <laughs> yep. Perhaps that's something we can delve into later. Um, there you go. For, for the listeners who are not aware, Dean, can you give us a bit of a, a background of who you are, what you do, and more importantly, why you do it? Um, well, I'm sure as everyone can tell by my accent, I'm from Canada. So six months of the year, we're buried in snow, um, especially in my neck of the woods. But uh, I've always just liked working out and being active. I played a whole bunch of sports really poorly when I was growing up and wound up being injured more often than I should be. So I figured, well, I like the workout part. I don't like being injured, so I might as well do the workout part and try to show people how to not get injured because I was really good at getting injured myself. So uh, from there, I got a degree in kinesiology. I got a bunch of certifications, worked at a commercial gym for 15 years and started opening up my own thing. And I've been doing that for the last two years. On top of that, I've been able to write a whole bunch for different publications like Men's Health, Women's Health, Shape, T Nation, Bodybuilding.com. I've traveled all over the place teaching workshops and uh, yeah, try to fill up as many hours in the day as I can with stuff that is really meaningful to me. That sounds good. That sounds good. And what were some of the initial injuries that you were very talented at acquiring in your own endeavors? I was really passionate about basketball. So a lot of sprained ankles, the odd patella tendinopathy. Um, fortunately I didn't break any bones, but I just wound up like straining stuff and rolling stuff, stretching stuff too far. So yeah, it was just a whole bunch of doing stuff I shouldn't have done type injuries. I was also really big at like climbing rocks and running through mountains and stuff like that. So falling off things was kind of important. Yeah. There you go. It's funny how things work out, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Now we had a quick quick uh, chat before we started and I touched base on this a little bit and this is one of my first questions and I want to open up because I want to sort of set the scene for the rest of the podcast and I think those who are emotionally intelligent are probably already getting this you're quite a humorous guy you don't take yourself too seriously love that I think it's great in the industry when you can get that balance of you know education and communication now with your teaching method and how it's evolved because obviously you do, as you said, you sort of write for a lot of publications, you do a lot of seminars, symposiums, or however you want to phrase them. Why do you think it's important to add humor um, within the way you teach? And how has that benefited you being able to communicate knowledge effectively to your audience? Um, well, I'm sure we've all had uh, times where we've had to read technical information that was about as dry as stereo instructions. And it doesn't really make you want to do any more of it. And you probably forget half of what you have to read. Or if you're listening to somebody who's got an incredibly monotonic voice, tell you about stuff that's important that you just want to fall asleep in front of. So what I've found is that for people to actually pay attention to what you're saying, they have to be somehow invested in it. And that doesn't just mean financially, but they have to be emotionally invested in it. They have to want to hear what you're actually saying. So if you throw an odd joke in there or a little bit of a cornball routine or you tell a funny story, that'll actually relay the information that you're looking to relay much more effectively than just giving people details, facts, and figures. I mean, you can have some people who are very data analytical and can remember stats and graphs 
like not, nobody's business, but that doesn't necessarily convey the importance of what they're actually trying to say. If you have somebody tell you a story of how that graphs and figures actually play out, people will remember the story much more effectively than they'll remember the actual data that you put in front of them. But if you can tell people a mix of a story, data, throw some humor in there or get people's attention somehow, they'll remember much more of the content that way than if you were to just give them the straight facts and figures. You're still giving them information, but you're doing it in a way that makes them want to pay attention to it and is going to help them to remember it later because they have something to anchor their thought processes to rather than just giving them numbers. So mm -hmm. when it comes to a learning style, it's all about helping people get more out of it. So throwing the odd joke in there once in a while. Plus, I, I'm kind of a joker myself to begin with. It's my personality. I would rather have somebody laugh than be really serious. So that's just me being genuine and saying, hey, I, I, I think this is fun. I think this is enjoyable. Let's have a little bit of fun. Let's throw some 90s hip hop on. Let's crush some deadlifts and have a blast. That way people can actually enjoy their process more than if we were to just give them the basic facts and figures. For sure. I think that's coming more and more into light now as, as we evolve. I think you see it, you know, whether it's in education, whether it's in film, people are kind of adding those nuances in and trying to really relate to what's current. You sort of apprehended my next question there in or the, the second part in terms of, you know, did this come naturally to you? I think it does. It's part of your personality. Would you offer any advice for people who are perhaps listening or sitting there thinking that, oh man, you know, I'm really reserved. I'm really low key to be able to perhaps add some of that into complement their, you know, skill set, but without obviously becoming something that they're not. Um, well, to say that I knew what that skill set was to begin with, um, that's a little bit of a jump of the gun. It took a long time for me to figure out what my voice should be and especially how to utilize it properly in a way that people would actually resonate with, but also that would fit who I am as a person. So I wouldn't say that people should just like jump into it and do it if it doesn't feel natural. It's got to be something where you have to do practice. You have to try stuff. You have to put yourself out there and gain experience to be able to figure out what works for you and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. How do you gain experience? You literally just have to do it. Like I was fortunate enough that in the commercial gym I used to work at, I was teaching a lot of the continuing education. So every month I was in front of a room full of people talking about stuff, whether it was diabetes and hypertension or assessments or uh, post-rehab injury recovery type stuff. But I had a new room in front of me every single time. And my goal was to say, okay, well, how do I get them to simply pay attention? Because a lot of these trainers were told to be there. They weren't paying to be there. So their motivation to be there was really low. But how do I get these unmotivated trainers? Some of them were really motivated, but a lot of them weren't. So mm -hmm. how do I get these unmotivated trainers to pay attention to things like rotator cuff pathology or um, getting their clients blood pressure medication measurements down pat? any of that kind of stuff. So how do I get these trainers who don't want to be there to pay enough attention to want to get through the coursework and then remember stuff afterwards. So I give all the credit in the world to really great teachers out there who that is their job and that is their profession to get some kids who are just not motivated to be there to actually just pay attention enough to remember what they're talking about. It's a little bit easier with adults in, in that usually they're a bit more invested in it, but I can only imagine how hard of a job it would be to be a teacher in front of 30 or 40 kids all year long and have maybe 10 of them checked out entirely on what you're talking about. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I think a lot of people around the world, especially a lot of parents right now have a lot more sympathy for teachers having to, you know, homeschool their kids. So perhaps spend that little bit of time. And I think a bit of humble pie is always good. So definitely agree there. Credit where it's due for a lot of teachers is definitely an art 
within that. And I think a lot of us can relate. Uh, we sort of mentioned before, you know, when you were at school, there was always a couple of teachers who were better. And, you know, perhaps when you were younger, you didn't really know why that was. You just, oh, mate, that teacher's cool. Or there's that one over there and he, he's up to uptight. And then there was that one who was kind of like had that bit of humor, but was still intelligent. And it just seemed to sink in and and again, as you grow older, you kind of realize, oh, that's because there was a bit more sort of realistic and you could relate. And I think relatability is a, is a really big element. So that is something that I think is important as the education evolves, especially the way we teach it as well. Apart from humor, Dean, what other skill sets do you think are required to be a good physiotherapist, to be a good practitioner like yourself, to help people you know, avoid injury and move better? And the reason I'm asking this one specifically is, is a big gray area when you are working with, you know, athletes, people, general population, rehabilitation, whatever it might be. And uh, we'll get into a little bit more of that in a moment. But I imagine observation skills are quite up there. I'm trying to empathize. But because everyone's so individual, I can imagine that there'll be so many little idiosyncrasies where you might see someone and go, oh, it's it's this is the this is the issue and then you spend a bit more time and you're like oh crap it's completely not the issue and things are very much masked is this something mm -hmm. that comes obviously with experience or do you have certain techniques mm -hmm. and skill sets to be able to sort of get in and get to the root cause of what's actually going on um i think the biggest skill set to develop would be communication because obviously i can't say what a client feels when they're going through a certain exercise or a certain movement or i don't know what um the type of scenario they're going through is. So just understanding what they're feeling and getting a communicative element out of them can be probably the most beneficial thing you could probably ask for. So if I say, how did that squat feel? And they've got a pre-existing knee condition and they say, oh, it felt good. It just felt a little wonky. Okay, well, what does wonky mean to you? Like, did it feel tight? Did it feel stiff? Did it feel painful? Did it feel burning, numbness, sharp, stabby? Did it feel like it was going in the right direction or like it was a weird hingy type of thing. So tell me what wonky means to you. And then trying to just open up that freedom of communication back and forth. So if I can get more information from that client, as far as what they're actually feeling, I can have a better idea of what to do next. If it looks fine and they say it hurts, then I've got a little bit of a different problem. Is it biomechanical? Is it tissue irritation? Is it inflammatory? Is it psychosomatic? Is it something else going on in there? that I might not be able to touch on, or is it something where we got to kind of reframe what that feeling is? Is it that they feel that knee move and they assume any kind of feeling is pain? Or is it that they feel that knee move and it's actually tissue being damaged? So sensitivity versus actual tissue damage are two very different topics. But all of that comes back to what am I doing to communicate with that client? If it looks good and flies good, great. That's step one. Next is what does that feel like to that individual and what can we do to make it a better scenario or how can we frame their mindset so that they can get the most out of that workout while not thinking about negativity or too much or getting away from the purpose of why we're actually there. Mm -hmm. And I imagine then that this is key now that you're coaching people online because you're still able to deliver that by obviously communication. Cause I imagine that if you're not able to put your hands on someone or be able to manipulate their body, even having a video recording of them moving and then being able to speak, you know, is obviously going to be key to getting that feedback. Yep. What would you, what are your thoughts on? And again, this is a massive gray area here, so we might need to package this a little bit differently. The, the biopsychosocial 
feedback model in terms of when people feel pain, their interpretation of pain, their interpretation of movement, different feelings, and actually aligning that of what's real. There's a lot of, I think, misconception out there that all movement, like you sort of alluded to there, or, or, or you know, pain, or maybe a little bit of a, a different feeling, shall we say, to label it that way, can be bad where sometimes it isn't. But how how do you sort of communicate that to the to the client to the athlete to depict whether it's something that's detrimental and whether it needs fixed or whether it's just something that hey it's actually okay it's not getting any worse and it's not a detriment to performance yeah i mean the biopsychosocial model is fantastic because it actually shows that pain is interconnected but beyond that we still have to look at the movement if the person's going through a movement element of things so if somebody is doing an exercise and they say this hurts, but no other exercise hurts. Okay. Well, let's look at why you're doing that exercise. Do we, can, do we need to do that exercise first and foremost, or can we get a benefit in a different way? That's less sensitive. Um, in terms of when a movement hurts, we got to break down why does it hurt and how is it supposed to hurt? So if let's say that I rolled my ankle and I'm trying to do some stuff where I'm kind of loading the ankle into different positions, that sprain, no matter what I do is going to be sensitive until I can get enough strength and resiliency built up into that ankle so that sensitivity decreases. Now, I'm not trying to actually roll my ankle and continuously injure it all the time, but for the first little while while it's healing up, any pressure or movement on that ankle is going to be sensitive. Mm -hmm. So how much pain is appropriate for that wounded ankle? Maybe a two or three or four out of 10 on a one to 10 scale, where one being not even feeling any kind of pain, 10 being I'm lit on fire and being eaten by a bear. I don't want to get it to that point, but something where it's a little bit uncomfortable, but moderately reasonably tolerable is going to be all right. But then when it comes down to just basic exercise and somebody says, oh, my shoulders hurt until I get 20 minutes of warm up in and then I can do stuff and go through other things. That, that's a different story altogether because now we're dealing with not just a, a current injury. We're dealing with maybe long-term continuous stuff like chronic long-term injuries. So then we have to think about tissue tolerance, management, um, inflammatory response, all that kind of stuff. So then it just comes down to what communication and what uh, importance are we giving to different training programs for that individual. So if I tell a client, you know, this is going to hurt and this is the reason why, and this is the amount that I want you to be aware of, if it goes outside of that, we will have some safeties for right now. Be willing to let it be a little uncomfortable. And as long as it feels like this and not like this, then we're good to go. We can make it do that thing all day long. If it's that we need to change a movement in order to decrease stress on one area, in order to increase stress on something else, that's a different conversation. Like if I have an overworked um, patellar tendon and it's inflamed, swollen, and beat up, and I say, well, in, in order to decrease the pressure on that patellar tendon so it can chill, recover, and heal, we're going to switch up most of our work to do more hip-dominant stuff rather than knee-dominant stuff. So that way you can still get a training effect, but we're going to let that tendon just kind of chill and heal versus loading it and beating it up and going through this vicious cycle. We're not healing or we're not doing therapy. We're just decreasing stress on an area to allow it to do its thing. But we're doing it in a way where we're still getting a training effect. So by doing that, that's still fitting into the biopsychosocial model. We're just changing up the parameters of why we're doing things. We're allowing people to say, yeah, you know what? Your knee is sore because it's overworked. So therefore, we're going to change up the training program to not overwork that area, but make other areas do work. And if it starts to hurt, then we just need to adjust things around. Now, when we start getting into people's relationship with pain, that becomes an entirely different conversation. But that was just like a, a quick two-second overview of what I do for 
managing pain or managing people's experience with pain from a really poor trainer's effect. Um, there are people out there that are probably shaking their head like that's terrible, but at the end of the day, it comes down to, is it working with that client? And is it something where I can help them in one way or another? Or do I need to tag out and get a secondary therapist in there to do more stuff? So I'm more than happy to tag out and get a physio, a chiropractor, a voodoo shaman priestess, witch doctor, you know, anybody in there who knows what they're doing, who I've worked with in the past and has a good track record and who I know is going to be able to do a good job for that person in there to do stuff more than what I can do for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think having the, um, the allied professionals and a, and a network around is really important. And I think, as you said, people who you can trust and rely on because, you know, we can't do everything, although mm-hmm. it's nice to have a bit of a bit of crossover area so you can communicate with your fellow professionals but at the same time it's it's good to even get a second opinion or even have them to fall back on so you can go hey if you go see x person come back to me we can communicate and then create a better solution yep. i i understand that the the biosoco psychosocial feedback model is a rabbit hole and a mouthful um, in and of itself. And there's a lot more research to be done on pain science. And I guess it comes down sometimes to the basics, once again, common sense and not trying to overcomplicate things. And as you've already said, set that clear communication and, and boundaries and then continue to problem solve it as you go. There's not necessarily uh, a clear cut right and wrong. And I think this is where this digression comes from between the textbooks and real life experience, which I often talk about with my guests of, yes, we need the backbone of science to make sure that we're in the ballpark and we're not doing things that are completely stupid. But at the same time, we need that real life hands-on experience to be able to go, well, hang on a minute. This might be what the textbook says, but it's not working. This is working. Well, if it works, it works, right? And then sort of sometimes following your nose a little bit. With uh, the clients and the clientele that you work with, I know you work with an array of, of them, and not to put anyone in a box, but would what would you say is the most challenging, if you could categorize, type of client, whether that's autoimmune, uh, physically impaired, I don't know, it might be different uh, language barriers, different cultures, ethnicities, what would you say are the most challenging um, populations and what have you learned from them that has been able to enhance your skill set? Um, there's uh, always going to be those that have like multiple comorbidities going on that um, it's like layers of dysfunction that make things harder uh, almost in, uh, exponentially. So I've got one client who's had bilateral hip replacement, bilateral knee replacement. She also has MS and um, colitis on top of two or three other autoimmune disorders and heart condition. So she's only in her late forties, which makes things even more challenging because she doesn't have any of the normal 50, 60, 70 year old, um, biology, but she still has all of those other fun things going on. Uh, Another group is Paralympic athletes. So they're training for a specific sport. They are athletes, but they have something that makes it so they don't compete in the able-bodied Olympics, but it, every individual is going to be a little bit different, whether they have some type of degenerative neural condition or they're an amputee or they have uh, cerebral palsy or something like that, that makes the setup on their equipment different. That makes their ability to train altered. Or if they're in a wheelchair, there's specific physiology that changes when somebody's had a spinal cord injury and they're now in a wheelchair. Um, it's all going to be very different. So they're still training to be athletes. So you still have to put them through athletic training programs but they have those one or two little twists in what they're going through that makes them not textbook, but they still have a lot of the same responses just with simple variations that you might have to put them through to get the results you're looking for. 
So those are some of the most interesting cases that I tend to work with. The ones that it's like, I just want to lose 20 pounds. You might have to go through more like the psychological element. You have to introduce them to exercise and make it into a habit, which can be a massively daunting challenge on its own, depending on who you're going through. Um, but the ones that really get me interested are the ones where it's like no other trainer would ever approach that individual and say, I feel like I would be comfortable working with them. Those are the ones where I'm like, hi, me over here. I'll do that. Yeah, no, that, that's really good. And this is why I wanted to follow this line of inquiry. And I'm going to ask a selfish question because I have a family member who do, does have MS. What are some of the, the protocols? And if you could give us some real life examples of it's um, uh, okay with the clients you've worked with that you can do with, and I know it affects patients in different ways, but with autoimmune disease like MS, what are some of the um, training, you know, protocols that you can use as the, perhaps some stretching techniques, massage, et cetera. There's a lot of things obviously that are put out there for autoimmune dietary requirements and movement patterns. But what have you found to actually be most effective in your experience? Well, with a lot of conditions like that, they exist on a spectrum. So you could have somebody who is very minimally symptomatic and everything goes well for them, or maybe they're just sensitive to heat and cold, or maybe they just have some mild numbness and tingling in their hands or in their feet. And you have some people that are completely debilitated in a wheelchair and need assisted living. So in that same condition, you've got that entire spectrum of possibility. Mm -hmm. Now you can also have people that go through recurring and remitting cycles where it flares on them and then it gets better and then it flares on them and then it gets better. And each time it flares, it might change what their symptoms actually are. So they might be dizzy. They might be nauseous on one flare, but they get better. And then on the next one, the left side of their body is numb and then it gets better. And then the next one, whatever, right? So you're never really going to have any set protocol that's going to work across that population. Mm -hmm. It's more going to be, what are we able to do today? And then how are we able to progress this individual to tomorrow? So if that means that you have a great game plan of a training program, and then they text you and say, Hey, I've had a flare up. I can't do any intense loading. Otherwise I'm going to be in bed for three weeks. What do we do? Okay. Well today we're going to do mobility work. We're going to do low intensity breathing work, basic core stabilization work, very low threshold balance stuff. And we're going to see how you feel tomorrow. And if that causes an increase in your symptoms, then we're going to step it back even further. But if you feel great from that, awesome. That means that we'll keep doing that until you feel like you're through whatever flare-up phase that you're currently in, if it is possible for you to get through that. If not, then we'll just do a couple of gradual ramp-up, ramp-down intensity phases or volume phases where we kind of push you a little bit and then give you time to recover. Push you a little bit, give you time to recover. I've had some times where I'm working with clients whenever their heart rate gets above a certain level, they need to take an ice pack and put it on the back of their neck. That allows their nervous system to kind of chill out. For them, it might just be entirely placebo effect, but it worked for them. That doesn't mean it works for everybody because I have other clients who, as soon as they touch cold, then their body feels like it's in freak out mode. So it just fires their nervous system up entirely. So the treatment for one was the poison for another. That doesn't mean that it's going to be that way for everybody, but it just means that's how incredibly variable uh, some of these symptoms are. But that's also why it's incredibly hard to nail down what would work and what doesn't work. So that way you just have to say, okay, well, let's train you the best way possible and adapt and be willing to be uh, flexible in your style every single training session. Some sessions you can do it right by the book, whatever you had laid out. Great. Everything's good. Some sessions you just have to carpet bomb it and toss it away and say, okay, well, what can we do in the next five minutes? That'll be something that you feel you tolerate well. And that's just how you got to work at it.
Yeah, which makes sense. It is such a, a varying condition, uh, like you, you explained at the start there. It can be quite cruel, like a lot of things, and I guess you just got to see where you are on the day and then make the best of it. Is there any um, therapeutic protocols that you find for enhancing that sort of neural connection? Or again, is it very individualized, case-by-case basis? Like, for example, you know, any sort of massage techniques, any stretching techniques that seem to always sort of free up the body or, you know, enhance movement in some way, shape, or form or feel within the body? Um, I, I would say that there's not any that are specific to MS. I mean, they're going to respond the same way as anybody who doesn't have MS would. It's just going to be, what do they tolerate and what do they go through? They still have the same anatomy and physiology. It's just their nervous system is a little bit wonky because it's kind of being attacked by their autoimmune system. So some days are going to be exactly great and they're going to do exactly what a a normal person who doesn't have MS would be able to do. And then there's some days that they're going to be affected and there's nothing you could do or couldn't do that's going to get them out of that or be therapeutic or beneficial. Um, It just is what it is. I mean, you might be able to do some basic static stretching and breathing drills to downregulate the nervous system, which might flare one person up and feel really good for another. So it's very much how does that individual tolerate it and what do they feel like? And then just make sure that you're listening to them and developing those communication skills to be able to say, let's adapt and move forward. Uh, I would say that if somebody's having a lot of issues on with what their feet or their lower limbs are going through, getting them to do balance drills would be massively important. And getting them to do anything where they have to cognitively put their body into certain positions would be huge. And that would be important across the population too. But for anybody who's got any kind of neural dysfunction, that would be where I would want to spend some time, if not most of my time. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. I appreciate the the feedback and experience on that one. It is an interesting field and how that develops with science. It seems to be one of the areas we just can't quite fix yet. We can do bones, we can do ligaments, we can do muscle and a lot of other things. But um, yeah, the neural... uh, pathways just seem to be a little bit beyond us although we do have our friend um (laughs) oh his name's just escaped me uh i shouldn't forget elon musk with apparently the neural link um again we'll see how that develops it's an interesting uh concept um moving on to more strength-based athletes dean what are the most common injuries that you see within that scope and what what are the biggest mistakes made do you think by strength athletes when it comes to best practices like for example it could be warming up drills it could be the way they approach you know their strength training are there any trends within those athletes or do you see certain muscle groups or certain impingements like hips or knees that always seem to be going and are there any sort of generalized fixes or um, I guess, common trends of, of fix for these athletes that they can quickly utilize or be aware of to to improve that the way they actually move through these big movements. And I guess maybe thinking more along the lines of like the squat, the bench, the deadlift variations. Yeah, I mean, there's because powerlifting has such a very restricted movement set to it, and you're going to see a lot of the same type of injuries like lower back, knees, anterior shoulder, So a lot of the time, the treatment for that kind of stuff is to really refine technique, find what works for the individual and makes them lift in a way that feels good for them, but then also do stuff outside of those set planes. So I've worked with a bunch of cyclists before and I've taught seminars on healthy hips and hip mechanics and that kind of stuff. And with cycling, you're just doing this all day long. So if a cyclist 
only ever trains their hip in the sagittal plane, they no longer have a hip, they have an elbow. So getting them to learn how to do something simple like internal and external rotation, can you bring your leg out to the side? That's foreign stuff for a lot of cyclists. And if you were to ask a power lifter to bring your arms over your head, they can't. Like you look at some of the old power lifters, it's like this is how high their arms go, which is exactly as high as an incline bench press would ever be for one. So get them to learn how to do things like can you protract your shoulders? I know on bench, everyone's always retract, 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 get down, get low. Okay, but can you actually move your shoulders in the other direction? Can you scratch the back of your head or scratch the back of your shoulders without your body exploding? Can you move and turn one way or another? Can you get outside of that straight on sagittal plane dominance all the time, which isn't going to be as directly beneficial for the sport, but it's going to reduce the likelihood that you're going to wear away a motor pattern or wear away a part of your joint that's going to eventually lead to problems down the line. You look at a lot of the old power lifters, they're all getting hip replacements just due to the fact that they've just chewed up their joints with super heavy weights, super high intensity, lots of volume and loading in ways that probably just wasn't good for it. Now, I'm not to say that powerlifting causes people to have hip replacements, but there are definitely some things that you need to be aware of. It's like if your hips are sore, don't keep loading them up. Give them a chance to chill, heal up, and feel better. A lot of training programs are set up as like 50 to 70% 1RM with the volume, and you're supposed to stop at a certain number. That doesn't mean 50 to 70% for four or five sets, and then we max out every single day. That means like train the lift, not necessarily trying to test your max every single day. If we can get people that in powerlifting to have a mindset more like an Olympic lifter, when it comes to how do you practice the skill? How do you practice the movement? How do you do a thousand reps with an empty broomstick to learn how to perfect that motor pattern? And then you start adding weight to it. And like most powerlifting workouts are one set empty bar throw 20 kilograms aside. Now do a set with that and then throw another 20 kilograms aside. Now do a set with that and keep doing that until you die. That, that's not really a good powerlifting workout. That's a really good way to just see how much weight you can throw around that day. But in terms of getting better at powerlifting, you look at a lot of the elite guys and girls, the ones that are skilled and who are setting the biggest records, most of them don't have peak weeks until a week or two before competition. And that's where they start getting into like 95% plus of their one rep max. Most of the time, it's going to be like 70, 75, 80% for singles. And that's way below what a max would be. But they're trying to get to that point of just rehearsing the motor pattern to make it so automatic that they don't have to think, am I squeezing my lats? Am I bracing my ribs? Am I getting my shoulders packed over top of the bar? Any of that kind of stuff. They've got enough time lifting the heavy stuff that 60, 70, 80% of their max is more than enough loading to be able to get away with it. I mean, think about somebody like Thor Bjornsson, the Icelandic mountain, right? 70% of his max is still 700 pounds. So he's still putting loading on his body and still working at it, but it's not completely demolishing him every single day to be able to lift a thousand pounds. Yeah, I think this is a really big mistake with a lot of even general gym goers where they, they don't understand RPE. They don't really understand, you know, programming because, you know, and we've all been there. A lot of us have been there. If you don't get that knowledge where you just go in, you think, yeah, just got to smash it. Just got to smash it every time we go in five days a week, chest, bro, chest day, legs yeah. day, you know, and you're sort of training once one muscle group. Whoa, 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 whoa. You said leg day. We got to skip that. <laughs> That's <laughs> what is that, bro? Like, do you mean just leg yeah. extensions? 10 by 10. Leg, leg day is the optional day off, right? 
<laughs> or it's just an extra chest or back day because they're they're the, they're the real muscles, right? Um, exactly. <laughs> it's but it's so true, and um, you know you, you do, and you and you, you wonder why. It's like oh, but I'm not getting bigger, and like you said, it's just all about being hardcore. And I think a lot of people forget that strength is a skill, and that the, you know and this is why we see you know Olympic lifters and powerlifters and lifters in general that you know can move loads. They have no business moving from point A to point B because they have you know they've got that motor skill, they've got that pattern. That is, I find, one of the most challenging things. Uh, when I coach people who just want to get big and strong because all they want to do is just throw on heavy weight and like, whoa, 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 like before we get to, like, you can do that, but you're going to get so far. But if you work smarter and take a little bit more time, you're going to far excel over that. So I think that's a really, mm-hmm. a really important point there to make and, and manage. And also just having a bit of common sense where, like you said, there's that, you know, old school um, mentality where it's like, yeah, it's got to be super hard. It's meant to feel like it's, oh, the squat feels bad. or like you're doing it right. It's like, well, hang on a minute. Like may, may, maybe it isn't, you know, maybe it's not meant to be perfect all the time, but perhaps that's your body telling you too much. Like you said, you got to maybe let the joints chill a little bit, or perhaps there's something biomechanically not aligned within your technique as well. Um, are there any, stretching protocols is there any protocols in general that you found that seem to benefit strength based lifters uh, across the board or once again is it very individualized to the lifter in terms of programming it's always going to be individual and part of that comes down to how experienced is that athlete in the sport um, what are their common tendencies and are they in a hypermobility or no mobility state Mm-hmm. So I've got some female athletes who are anterior pelvic tilt, hard extension. That's just how they stand and are hypermobile. Do we need to stretch those individuals? No, because they've already stretched enough. They're already in a state where if I was to say retract your shoulders and get on a bench, they're creating that massive arc and their shoulders are already set as low as they can possibly go. How much more mobility does that individual need? None. They're already there. They can, that person can drop into the splits front, side, back, all over the place. So in terms of mobility, giving that person a stretching program is like banging your head against the wall and then taking Advil to get rid of the headache. You just keep banging your head against the wall. Well, let's stop banging your head against the wall. That way you don't need the Advil. It's going to save money on the pharmacy. So for those individuals, what they need to do is learn more positional competence. So if you can get into that hard extension position, get your shoulders right down, cool. Can you go the other way? can you get into a flexion position and maintain some level of control in there? Or are you shaking like a leaf and looking like you're going to pass out? Can you actually protract your shoulders and maintain that position without thoracic flexion? Can you stand on one foot? Can you do a single leg deadlift versus just being able to do a bilateral deadlift? And when you do the single leg deadlift, does it actually look like a deadlift or does it look like a plane that's about to veer into the ground? If I'm getting somebody who's not mobile, and they're very stiff all over the place, we're going to probably hang out in a whole bunch of isometric contractions and just long, long hold static stretching to try to get their joint capsules to actually loosen up a little bit to allow you to access some new range of motion. So if I put somebody into like a quad stretch, okay, great. Maybe they have the longest quads in the world, but they might have stiff, stiff, stiff capsules that aren't allowing that quad to actually stretch and they're getting a secondary referral. Okay. So now we're going to just hang out in a hip flexor stretch and I want you to stay there for 30 minutes, 30 minutes. Like, like I'm not even joking. If you want to get the capsule to actually get a bit of a stretch in it, 30 seconds isn't going to be long enough. It'll be great to make the muscle feel okay. But if you want to actually see deformational changes 
in actual arthrokinematics, you're going to need to hang out there for a very long time. Have you ever had braces on? Like teeth? On your teeth, yeah. Yeah, I did actually. How long did you have to have them on for? Oh, yeah, that was a few years. A few years, right? And that was 24-7, 7, like 12 months a year. And how far did the teeth actually move? Yeah. yeah. Millimeters, maybe? That's so it. If, yeah. So imagine if you had to put those braces on for 30 seconds a day and expected to get good results out of it. It's not going to happen. So if I have somebody who's got an actual tight fibrotic hip that's not moving, and I say, well, just do this quad stretch, and okay, you're done. Now come back tomorrow and we'll see if we can do the same thing. It's not going to create any deformational change to the actual structure of that individual. And it's going to be hard for them to get into the bottom of that squat if they have a tight capsule. If they have stretchy quads, if they have stretchy hamstrings, cool. They should be able to do the movement itself because muscle itself is actually very, very pliable. When people say, oh, your myofascia is tight through here, BS. If you have a tight capsule, that's going to be the first thing that's going to limit your mobility. You might have bone-on-bone -bone contact early in a range of motion. You might have fibrosis through the capsule, which if you're an experienced lifter, you are going to have because you've exposed it to so much force over so much time. It's just going to happen. So if you're really stiff constantly and no stretch is seeming to help you, then we need long hold static stretching because that's what's going to actually change the kinematics of that joint in an appreciable way. Now, the older you are, the slower it's going to be. The younger you are, the faster it's going to be because kids have these green deformable bones that we can actually bend into different positions and do all sorts of funky stuff based on unilateral sports. You see a baseball pitcher, the layback position that their arm can get into on their throwing arm is way, way, way better if they start playing ball early. And if you compare that to for their non-throwing arm to their throwing arm, it's going to be significantly different. So we can deform bones when they're young. It's really hard to do that when somebody gets older. So as somebody gets into an older age group of 40 plus and they want to be an athlete, they have to spend a lot more time doing very long hold stretching to be able to deform that capsule to put it where you want it to go. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to add on to what you said there with, with a personal sort of anecdote. And it was about, um, I'd say a year and a half ago now where I started to take static stretching to a different level of seriousness. And I really wanted to commit to doing it a lot more because I knew the benefits of it. And the physios that I work with over time have said, look, like you, you do it, but you need to do it more. And for me, it always had a lot of QL lower back impingement, not, not massive, but if, you know, I'm, I'm squatting and deadlifting a lot and the intensity is getting high, it was always just kind of sort of hanging around. And I went to a physio and he goes, he says tight quads. And I said, nah, and he's like, no, I'm telling you, it is. And I'm like, it's not. And anyway, did these sort of like little sort of functional tests. I mean, he's like, look, it, it is. And I was like, okay. He's like, look, I'm telling you. He's like, and I said, oh, someone's told me this before. Another physio, he's like, yeah, but did you do it? And I'm like, well, I did. And he's like, but did you do it for this long for this? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, look, honestly, man, like you really need to do it. Anyway, I, uh, I started a, a full sort of uh, a group stretching routine where I would actually get a group of different stretches and I've sort of customized it once again to suit my needs. And it took about six weeks of stretching every day for 45 minutes to an hour to even see, you know, results. And, you know, again, I'm trying to tell clients this. I'm trying to say, look, it's not easy. It's not hard. You, you, you know, you complain about this and that and the other. But, you know, I'm not saying this is the answer. But a lot of the time, people just don't want to do these, these basic things because they're not sexy. They take time. You know, it's not something you can buy. It's not shiny. It's not, um, you know, grandiose in any way. 
But by doing that, you do see the results. But I think, again, the expectation and the return on investment oftentimes is not depicted too well or people are not really telling you the truth um, of what it actually takes to get to that point. Here I am now, I can reduce that time. But at the same time, my body feels a hundred times, a hundred times better. All my lifts improved. Uh, I don't have that same niggling. And if I do, I know it's, oh, what is it? Oh, you've not been stretching enough, you know? So you find sort of that, that minimal effective dose um, uh, to a degree. It doesn't always have to be that way. But I don't know if you've got any sort of real life experience or if you want to add on to that before we move on to the next topic. Yeah. Um, my wife is a great example. She's very hypermobile, but last year she was in an accident while track cycling. Uh, somebody came up and hit her from behind on her bike. She went down, put her arm out and wound up dislocating her elbow. So she dislocated it nothing was broken, no nerves involved, anything like that. They put it back in. So then she had to be casted or not casted, but braced and limited mobility for a couple of weeks to allow it to kind of stiffen up. But then the elbow went fibrotic, which meant that scar tissue just went and just super glued that elbow into place. So she couldn't extend her elbow or flex it. I've got a really funny picture of her trying to feed herself. And she's like, she can't quite get the food to her mouth because she can't flex her elbow. So there's two types of treatment for that. One is manipulation under anesthetic. The doctor puts her under a general anesthetic and like <clears throat> cracks the joint around to try to break up scar tissue. Ooh. But the rate of fibrosis reoccurrence is about 75%. So you crack somebody's elbow around, it moves great that day. They go home, they sleep, and then they wake up and they're like, oh, I can't move my elbow again. And not fun. And the other approach is progressive splinting. So they put you in a flexion brace, which pulls you into end range flexion. And then you're supposed to wear that brace for eight hours. And then they put you into end range extension and lock that elbow into place. And you wear that for eight hours a day, every single day until it moves. So 16 hours a day of essentially end range static stretching. And every week she goes into the ortho and they adjust the brace to make it to match up to what her new range of motion is. And she had to do that for four months. So four months of 16 hours a day end range static stretching in order to regain the motion of her elbow. So I should tell you about how long it takes for capsular joint mechanics to actually change when it comes to static stretching. If you think 30 seconds a day, twice a week is going to do it, you're, you're going to feel good for that 30 seconds. Don't get me wrong. Static stretching feels great when it's done short term. Long term, it's a different story because the longer you hold a stretch, the greater the myotatic reflex kicks up to be able to say, this is bad. We don't like this. This is like, get us out of this and put us into happy places. So 16 hours of static stretching is going to deform that joint capsule and make all of those receptors get really pissy, but it's eventually going to create new force elongated fibers that can actually get into position versus being longed up, tightened up like this you can now stretch and create a little bit of a manipulative effect to that tissue. But it takes a long, long time to make that happen. Yeah, yeah, and there you go. I think that is a really good thing to underline for the listeners as well so they can actually start to get a bit of a perception of what it takes. Um, long story short, don't get injured. Uh, <laughs> but I, yeah, but I think, no, in all seriousness, I know I was speaking to... Um, Corey, Corey Propes from the Diet Doc, and she had a, a bit of a bad fall on, on her bike, unfortunately. And again, it's I always talk about the cyclist, man. And I, I ride, I don't know if you ride a motorbike team, but I, I ride a motorbike and we all go out and I've ridden the, the you know, the cycling as well. And um, 
R and M, but just I look at these guys and I'm like, man, you're you're going like 80 mile an hour down this hill, uh, and you're wearing lycra. <laughs> I'd rather be wearing all the full leathers. And I think I always sort of make a bit of a joke about that digression, which I think is funny. Um, the next topic I want to get onto before we go, before we wrap it up, is some uncommon treatments for shoulder and knee mobility. I know sh- shoulders. It seems like from my perspective, one in two guys have just got a shoulder injury uh, from doing mm-hmm. too much heavy pressing. Um, as a trainer, I'll, a lot of the time when I do some basic body uh, movement analysis, I see, you know, obviously generally women are great through here, thoracic mobility, you know, lordosis, whatever, scoliosis, but then guys, it's, it's always the, it's always the shoulder mobility. Are there any common or uncommon um, techniques or protocols that you use, again, to help aid the, the shoulder health? It's a beautiful joint, but there's a lot going on in there. And I think a lot of people can relate because they do have some sort of pain and impingement. Yeah, one that I use a lot for teaching people how to retract and hold their shoulders is bench press. Mm-hmm. If you do it well, bench press is an incredibly good tool for building up stability. And then if I want people to learn how to move their arms overhead, we can do something like a hang drill where you just grab onto a bar and you just kind of put your body weight into it and you hang and try to pull yourself forward and just get into that position, allow gravity to kind of do the work. Or you could do a wall slide where you use the wall as an anchor point and you try to drive your arms up while getting scapular upward rotation. Um, most of the time it's just basic stuff. Can you put your arms over your head and can you pull your arms down? If you can do that kind of stuff well in the direction that I'm trying to tell you to do it and against loading, that usually solves a lot of stuff. Like we don't need to get really finicky as far as like the specific angle of the fiber of the lower trap. I mean, that's great, but who cares? Like if that means that that individual can only now move their arm in that direction in that position, what happens when they have to move in a different direction? Well, okay, they have to control that too. So we might need some movement variability in it. Yeah, include movement variability. A bench press works great until it doesn't work anymore. So do a dumbbell press, do a floor press, do a landmine press, do a Viking press, press your neighbor's dog over your head. I don't care, but get used to actually bracing and moving and getting the shoulders to actually do something. It might mean that you have to start with really regressed styles of things, but eventually you want to get to a point where any task given to you, you can accomplish. Yeah. So let's start with the basics. Can you do a press? Can you do a pull? And can you move your arm away from your body relatively confidently? Yeah, no, hundred percent. I, I, something that I do, and I, and again, please uh, feel free to um, comment and recommend a way or for this is uh, I sort of get people generally to go into like a squat position on a wall and put their hands as far back as they can comfortably. And something that I think I try and do to test the range of motion over time, or try and get them in that position, apart from using you know strength-based exercises through different ranges of motion, you know, different presses, diagonal, horizontal, vertical, etc., is you know, can over time that they actually get their hands in that position or even doing, you know, static holds within, you know, different ranges until they can improve that. I don't know if that, it, again, is something that is beneficial. It seems to be something simple and effective. But again, I think it's more about the dosage. You know, how long are they doing it? How often are they doing it? And, you know, again, what what is the actual going what's going wrong because i think sometimes there's there's other things within shoulders um and a lot of people talk about the rotator cuff i don't know my pet hate is seeing people stand there with dumbbells doing this all the time um doing prone hold mm-hmm. bicep sort of hammer curls rather than actually learning to um, manipulate the scapula if you will yeah yeah i mean if it works it works that's the key thing if the client says hey this feels better and i can do this more effectively 
it worked no matter what it is. So sometimes we don't have to get too finicky about it. A lot of the time it's like, okay, well, a great program to follow is a squat bench, bench deadlift type program. We're on day one, you have squat, day two, you have bench, day three, you have deadlift. That can solve a lot of things. And then you fill in the gaps with accessory work. That doesn't mean that squat, bench, and deadlift has to be with the barbell. And it doesn't mean it has to be a max effort. And it doesn't mean that that is the only thing you do. It just means that that is a great system to work with that you fill in the gaps around it. So if it works, it works. Use it. 100%. I mean, you can't beat the basics. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, before I move on to my, my final question, Dean, I've got a couple of rapid fire questions that are less serious in nature, a bit more fun. Um, so I'm going to rattle those off. So whatever comes to mind, answer as honestly as possible. Probably enjoy these ones. The first question is, if you could choose a superpower, what would it be and why? Um, the ability to recover from any workout immediately. You know what? That's a good one. No one said that. That's a beauty. I'm going to pop that one in the top drawer. That's that. There you <laughs> that's, go. That's fantastic. Um, if you could meet anyone and have dinner with them, dead or alive, who would it be? Would they be currently dead when I met them? It's up to you. Because, I mean, meeting a dead Cleopatra or Alexander the Great or Winston Churchill, like the dead them would probably be pretty cool. The alive them would be different, though. It depends what what action they've seen in the afterlife. I, I mean, if they're zombie style, that, that would be an entirely different type of meeting. It might be like a completely different version of that meeting. It's like, oh my God, there's a zombie. What do I do? <laughs> might put you off your dinner, that's for sure. No, they might make me their dinner. That might be the, the really weird part on it. Yeah, well, this, yeah, this is true. This is true. Um, I'm sensing you. You got a fan of maybe horror movies or something like that. Horror movies are fine. Uh, I mean, usually they, they follow the exact same scheme all the time. The good guy always wins and gets out alive. So that's not a good horror movie. You got to have a couple of times where the, the protagonist dies. This is true. This is true. Mm-hmm. Change it up a little bit. Yep. If you could have uh, a message on social media, an advertisement, you didn't have to pay for it and it would get in front of everyone's face. It'd be on everyone's phone, whatever social media they use, and they would get this message. What would this message be if it was just a short caption? Um, you don't need the gym to work out. It's great that you have a gym if you have one, but it's not essential. We'll get through this though. We'll get back to getting into the gym. Don't try to force it before it's too soon. Just let it be. People will get there when it's safe to do so. Brilliant. And I think that is, um, yeah, I'll second that one. I think that's really important. There's a lot of people complaining at the minute, thinking the gym's going to solve all their problems. Problems still existed when gyms were open and they'll still remain. So make the best of what yep. you've got. And my final question, Dean, which is a bit more serious in nature. I know you've got to go. So I appreciate your time so far, but if we can get through this last one, and that is, could you identify a fear that you've had to overcome in your life? Again, I always use public speaking as an example. Could be anything, could be big, could be small, what it was and what you learned from it. Um, I've, I've never really identified any specific fears I've had. I mean, I wish I could say I had a specific fear, like fear of flying or whatnot. I get to, I'm, I'm a bit of an anxious flyer sometimes, especially when turbulence hits. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, it's just like, oh, well, it's a big bus. You're in the air. And as long as it's not going down flaming and screaming, it's probably not going to be that bad. Well, that is true. And if it is, there's nothing you can do about it anyway, right? I mean, you might as well have fun on the way down. 
<laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Well, Dean, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for hanging out. Thanks for answering some questions, sharing some of your knowledge this morning. For people who want to learn a little bit more, follow along, where are the best places to find you? I'm on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and my own website, deansummerside.com. Um, shoot me a link if you haven't already, and we'll see if we can have some fun. Easy, done. And as always, guys, I'll put those links in the description. Dean, thank you once again for your time. And uh, for everyone listening, thank you. Make sure to you know, leave a rating review on iTunes if you're watching on YouTube. Subscribe for more. And I'll be back next week with another fantastic guest. And in the meantime, as always, stay fearless. Thank <laughs> you.